I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Hey, it's Jordan with a podcast for you. We thought today that we'd share the first episode of the second season of Tracking a Killer, a fellow City News and Frequency podcast. Why did I want to share this one? First of all, because everyone loves a good true crime podcast, but also because it's about a cold case. And cold cases these days are getting warmer. If you recall, a few months ago on The Big Story, we did an episode about genetic genealogy and how it will change long-term investigations. And if you want to get a sense of what that looks like in an actual case that's more than three decades old, this story of a Toronto woman who went missing in 1988 is a great example. Someone is still out there, and the clock is still ticking. Have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. If you like Tracking a Killer, you can find new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm 22 years old. I'm opening the door. I'm smelling, you know, the smell of a dead body. We believe it was a few days that she was deceased in the apartment. How could somebody just leave somebody there like that? Somebody out there is walking around and is responsible for this. This is Tracking a Killer, the Cold Case Files. I'm Phil Martino. And I'm Madison Fitzpatrick. Welcome back, listeners. It's season two. We had a great season one, and we're so glad that you're back with us today. We are two reporters from Toronto, Ontario. We are very interested in cold cases. Mm -hmm. I have been covering crime for over 25 years. I don't want to give my age away, but over (laughs) 25 years. Uh, So I've been to crime scenes. I've been to court. I've been to uh, sentencing hearings. I have covered all kinds of crime stories. Uh, And here's the thing. When you have a crime story, usually, you know, you have the crime. Then they say, hey, we have a suspect. The suspect's been arrested. Then the suspect goes to court, the accused. And then there's, you know, some sort of verdict. And then there's a sentencing. So there's like an ending, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for cold cases, there's no ending. So I like to retell them because I want to get an ending for them. Especially for the family members as well, right? For people that have been, you know, searching for answers for so long. And for me, I grew up uh, watching a lot of true crime. Uh, I think my parents turned off CSI for me (laughs) as many times as I can count. So uh, I just grew up uh, immersed in true crime in the forensic side of it as well. Obviously, DNA testing has been progressing since I was small throughout my life. So it's so exciting to see how science is really playing a factor in this detective work that we call investigation. That's right. And you, I know you love that stuff. Now, 
There are so many cold cases. In Toronto alone, the Toronto Police Service, they have like something like 700 unsolved. Mm -hmm. So there are so many that we can do, we can profile, but we picked the first one. For the season. For the season is about a young woman, Tatiana Tanya Anikaju. She was killed in her apartment almost 35 years ago. And we chose this case because one of her friends reached out to us and said, hey, my friend's case has never been solved. Mm-hmm. Can you retell the story? Number one. So we we are definitely interested in retelling this for sure. And number two, she lived alone. I have, like, I lived alone for over 15 years. So that kind of thing, it, it bothers me. This young woman in her apartment or in home and she's killed. So that's why I wanted to do this case. And for me, I mean, that is scary in itself. But what I think is scary is how long it took to find her. In this day and age, I don't think that the reasons for it taking so long to find her would even be a thing right now. Um, so it just, it really bothered me that it, it it took so long to find her. And we'll obviously give you the details and all that um, going forward in this episode. But the the parents of this young college student also died before knowing who was responsible. So we'll delve into a little bit of that, but this is our first episode. Tatiana Tanya Anikaju was found in her apartment in the Young and Eglinton area of Toronto by a friend and her parents on October 1st, 1988. She had been stabbed to death. What's even more heartbreaking about this case is that her parents died before knowing who was responsible for her brutal murder. But three of her friends have never given up on finding out the truth about what happened to her. Sandy Barola tells us she grew up with Tanya. Uh, So Tatiana, we called her Tanya. I I knew her always as Tanya. Uh, she, uh, She was awesome. She was funny. She was artistic. She was independent. Um, I knew her because she lived across the street from uh, my childhood home. So we got to know each other when we were growing up and uh, she just became a very close friend and she was really a wonderful person, very kind, always, um, always looking out for, for everyone. Um, she was an animal lover and, and like I said, very artistic. That was her passion. And that's what she ended up studying as well. So as I mentioned, she grew up across the street from me. And then eventually she moved out and she just became like a big sister to me. Maria Calandra met Tanya in the ninth grade. The first week, was I, I didn't have anyone to have lunch with, you know, the typical kind of high school story. And uh, someone I was in homeroom with suggested that I have lunch with her and her group. Um, so I appreciated that and went down to the cafe and met some of her friends. And the first person I met um, was Tanya, which was amazing because I, I could really feel like she went out of her way to to make me feel comfortable with them. Like it was important to her that I felt comfortable with them. She was very friendly and, and warm. And um, so I, I always remember that and always appreciate that. She um, painted and sketched and um, she also wrote as well. She was a writer. And um, I think that artistic side of her made her a very sensitive, compassionate person. Um, she was super smart. 
very astute. Her friends, her friends were important to her and fairly ambitious too. I mean, she went to college. She, she worked right after high school and um, wanted to get into college to, to study the arts. Um, so she worked towards that. Elena was Tanya's best friend. I met Tanya through work. So I didn't know her before that. Um, we ended up working at the, the same company. And uh, it was only, I guess, shortly after she started working there. I mean, we're, you know, young girls in our early 20s. Uh, everybody was going out at the time. So we started hanging out. Tanya, um, she loved to dance. We went out to dance a lot. Um, we, our, our work was at the Young Eglinton location. And uh, that's where she lived uh, close to, and I wasn't that far away. And so we were out several nights a week. At that time, um, you know, Eglinton was full of restaurants that had a DJ, you know, just after the dinner hour. And we'd go out and dance. Um, We spent a lot of time going for walks. We went to the movies. You know, she she liked to do things, but she wasn't, uh, I don't know if I want to use their, you know, uh, boisterous or anything like that. I was I was more the rowdy one, you know. And uh, but she um, she was kind of had a kind, gentle demeanor. Uh, but she was certainly fun. She liked to laugh. Maria Calandra was one of the last people to see Tanya alive. She stayed over at her apartment the Saturday before she was found, and they attended a wedding shower the next day. The last time that I saw. Tanya was a week before she was found. Um, a friend of ours was was, um, was getting married, and the Sunday before um, Tanya was found, there was a wedding shower. So um, the high school group and and family and friends, we all got together to celebrate this friend's shower, and and that was the last time that that we saw her. Um, and then during the week, we were trying to get in touch with her because our friend was getting married out of town and we had plans to make regarding the gift. We were buying a a gift together and plans to make regarding um, getting to where the wedding was. And um, so uh, there was a couple of us that tried several times to reach her and we kept getting her answering machine. And, And at first there was no concern, but near the end of the week, the answering machine was was full and we weren't able to leave messages anymore and of course that was super concerning um it and it was unusual I and mean, she was there was no reason for her not to get back to us really because she was very engaged with us and and it was unusual that we weren't hearing from her on the other hand you know it was the end of september she had just started um college and uh, she also was working part-time. So we kind of chalked it up to, you know, the adjustment to college and, and working. And and I'm sure we were sure we'd hear from her by the end of the week at the very least. However, when that didn't happen, by Saturday morning, we were obviously super worried about what could possibly have happened that we would not have heard from her all week and that she still wasn't answering the phone on Saturday and still not calling us on Saturday morning, the day of the wedding. So then we reached out to her parents and discovered that they hadn't heard from her for, for a few days either. So alarm bells were going off everywhere, and um, her parents, who lived in North York, drove downtown. And unbeknownst to us, um, to the, this group of friends that was going to the wedding, um, that was when... They found her, and they found Tanya um, in her apartment. 
so again, we didn't know. So here we go. We go off to this wedding, which was supposed to be a really super, like a wonderful, happy occasion. One of our friends from high school, you know, getting married and, um, and it was challenging because we thought, we thought maybe that she was, we thought that she was missing. There was no other reason other than something bad had happened. We did not go to the worst case yet at that point because we were just thinking, okay, something's happened. Yes, but she's missing and they'll find her and everything will be fine. But then as it turned out, um, when we got home on Sunday, um, everyone back home already knew because it all kind of, you know, it was discovered on Saturday morning that she had died. Um, but we found out Sunday afternoon after we got back. That's like my experience with um, how it how it came about and how it evolved from a happy occasion at the wedding shower and how it kind of devolved all week into into concern and crisis. And then Sunday finding out she she was gone. Elena tells us she was staying with Tanya temporarily that summer and had moved out just a week before she was killed. She was one of the last people to talk to Tanya. Elena says she called her on the phone and the two talked about the wedding Tanya was planning to attend. And she said to me, she goes, no, I've got to get my dress ready. I'm going I'm to dye it for the wedding because she had this dress she liked. She wanted it to be a different color. And I've got so many projects this week because she was kind of lonely when she went back to school because she was older. She didn't have friends. Um, yet and so believe it or not she would call me every day from school and on her breaks so that she had someone to talk to so she didn't feel alone so I mean we we were talking non-stop and then she called me and even tell me about her day so she was trying to give me the heads up she might you know be too busy to call and I'm like hey no problem right you know you know to just if you don't hear from me this is what might happen and uh and stuff because again every day she was calling me and so Monday goes by. I mean, of course, I didn't bother her. Tuesday night, I had a headache, and I um, and somehow something was bugging me. I couldn't put my finger on it, but uh, anyways, but I just thought, you know, I'm going to call her and uh, leave her a message. So I left her kind of a funny message and uh, something about the Olympics um, that I was heading off there, and and I just laughed and joked, hung up the phone. So I didn't hear from her Wednesday, and again thinking, you know, she's just busy. So Wednesday night, I'm out. I'm out at, uh, I remember where I was, Club Blue Note, listening to some blues with a friend. And something's telling me to call her again, which is really interesting. And of course, there's no cell phones at this time. I'm on the pay phone. And I called. And the police said they could hear my voice messages. I think I'm the last people on the phone, first on the phone. So I left a couple messages saying, hey, just seeing how you're doing. So by Thursday... I'm like, I know she said she's going to be busy, but I'm getting worried. So that's when I phoned another friend and who had contact with her parents. And I said, I'm going to go to the building. This seems strange. I don't know if I'm just imagining things. And she called me back and said, her parents said, don't go. They want to go with you. We'll go Saturday morning. She's probably just busy. So Friday from work because it was close to the building, you know, I actually walked over there. Something wouldn't let me go into the building. I honestly can't tell you why. I walked around the building. I hesitated and I did not go in because I guess I was scared, you know.
Elena and Tanya's parents went to Tanya's apartment. Saturday morning, her parents picked me up um, on the corner of Bathurst and Lawrence, near where I lived at the time. And we drove over there, and I couldn't open the door because we're knocking, nobody's answering. I couldn't open the door. So when I think about that now, I'm like, I'm trying to remember. Maybe it had a, you know, you could lock it from the inside and close it. It's probably what it was. But I had to go to the super to get the key. And it, and so the super gave her parents and I the key. And I took the key and I put it in the lock and I opened the door. Can you take us back to tell us what you saw? Yeah. Um, I opened the door. She was lying um, kind of where I would, like it was a big sectional so you could sleep on the whole sofa part. She was between that and the bed on the floor. I could only see from the neck down which the police said was good because I guess her head was hidden by the front part of the sectional. I did not walk in. We didn't step a foot in because the smell itself just sent us right out of that apartment. There was something on her chest that was red. You know, obviously it was blood, but at the time I'm 22 years old, I'm opening the door. I'm smelling, you know, the smell of a dead body. Her mom's behind me. And I start to scream, my friend needs help, my friend needs help. And I remember I'm knocking on the doors, pounding on all the doors, somebody help me, I need a phone. And her mom's staying really close behind me. Her father, it's like yesterday this happened, he backs away in shock. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding. With me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts. Available now. Sandy Barola says she was devastated to hear about Tanya's death. And my initial reaction was I just bolted out the door and I ran to another neighbor's house, another friend of mine who just lived down the street. I just ran inside her house and I was bawling and I just couldn't, I was piecing together what I had heard on the news. And so I understood that they had found someone, they had found someone in their apartment and that she was dead. And I had pieced it all together and figured out that it was Tanya and and I just couldn't believe it. I was it was such a shock and I just remember sitting in my friend's house just bawling, completely devastated about this because it's like how could this have possibly happened? And what happened? And so, you know, throughout the course of the the week I, I remember speaking to the police about this and just getting pieces and sort of dribs and drabs here and there and, and not really getting the full, full story, but I do recall that there was a stabbing because the police had actually asked me if I could, um, if I would be able to identify any missing cutlery. I mean, as, as gruesome as it sounds, but could I identify if there was anything missing from her kitchen? And I had been in her apartment many times, but, you know, obviously not close enough to say I could identify exactly the pieces that were that should have been there or should not have been there. She says someone must have heard something. 
so she lived in an apartment that the, the funny thing I remember about her apartment is that the walls in her apartment were super thin because there were neighbors who would play would have the radio on and it was so clear. I thought the radio was actually in her apartment. So whatever happened in that apartment, somebody heard it because she, Tanya was very tall. She was a tall, you know, uh, you know, she was a, a very tall and a very strong woman and she had a good voice that carried as well. So I'm sure that if I could hear a radio station that was playing in the room next door, they would have heard her scream for help. No, like no questions asked. Um, so I remember telling the police that the thing with her was that she was very careful with her door. Like she had multiple locks on her door. She didn't just have like a, the old chain link. And that was that, um, she had several locks on her door and she was very cautious. She wouldn't just let anybody into her apartment. So I deduced myself that it had to have been somebody she knew or she had met or somebody she trusted because she wouldn't let anybody in. She just wouldn't do that. That wasn't her. Maria Calandra says she doesn't remember anything unusual the weekend she stayed over at Tanya's apartment. Apparently, like, but when I went to give my statement, the police decided they wanted to show us photographs of the crime scene. And so I started looking through them and, and there's two that stand that stand out. One is that there was a photograph of two cups on her table, on her dining room table, and which, you know, which indicates to us that there was someone there that coupled with the fact that the person didn't break in obviously makes us think we can only assume makes us think that it was someone that she knew. Um, and then unfortunately they also showed me a photograph of, I don't know why they had to keep that in, but it was a photograph of the floor next to her um, sofa bed, the leg of her sofa bed and her blood was there. And like, and I don't understand why they had to show me that, but anyway, um, they didn't filter these photographs at all. Um, so those are the two photographs that um, stand out. And um, the other thing was that I'm remembering is how angry I was at the people in her apartment because I, when I was, we poured over news articles, of course, in the weeks following. And one of the reports, I don't recall the paper, said that folks had heard noise coming from her apartment um, I don't recall the, the descriptor, descriptors that were used, like whether it was shouting or whether it was crashing. I don't know. Um, but her apartment apparently was in disarray when she was found and that she did put up a fight is what I heard. Um, so if when she was putting up a fight, folks were hearing sounds that were unusual, I would have... I would have hoped that someone would have called the police, um, but no one did. Um, you know, maybe it wouldn't have saved her life, but maybe they would have gotten, the police would have gotten there sooner, you know, and, and maybe their investigations would have been more successful as opposed to, you know, investigating a scene that was maybe five days old. I'm not really sure exactly how old the scene was. I think it was five. And I have some bitterness I still carry bitterness 34 years later for that um just you know and also and it's it's gruesome but apparently also and I always remember this is something else I always recall is that there were folks complaining about a certain smell coming in, in that hallway and um no one complained to the super and so th there were there were there were occasions during that time 
where if someone had made a phone call, A, Tanya would have been found sooner, and B, her parents would have been spared having found her. That is something that I will always be angry about, that they weren't spared that. I think someone she knew came to her door and, um, you know, and, and I say someone she knew because from what I've been told, it, it didn't look like anyone had pushed in or broken in. So someone she knew came to her door and she let them in, of course, and um, things went bad. And I, I don't know if it was an old boyfriend if it was a neighbor or if it was someone that worked in the building, I don't like, I don't know. I have no idea. I have ne- I've never known all these years what could have happened. I mean, we know obviously what happened, but we have no idea why and who. Acting Detective Sergeant Steve Smith is with Toronto Police's Cold Case Unit. It's believed that um, although they found her on October 1st, that she was probably um, a victim of foul play earlier in September, September 28th-ish and around that date. When did she actually die? Do you know that? So they can't say an actual uh, time or date of death, but it's believed that Um, The last time she was heard from was in and around uh, September 28th. So anytime between that and October 1st, um, there was a state of decomposition. So we believe it was a few days uh, that she was deceased in the apartment. Did you have any suspects at the time? Yes, there was a number of suspects. There was uh, two suspects that the investigators had really um, looked into. Unfortunately, at the time, they weren't able to... uh, associate these suspects with the homicide. Um, Since then, we've looked at a number of homicides, and we're still looking at the case where we're trying to develop the offender DNA from the case. Um, There's a lot of DNA at the scene, and it's it's taking a lot of time to to separate all of um, the information that we have in order to try to create uh, an offender DNA profile. She died several days before she was actually found. Say she was found the day she was killed. Would this have made any sort of difference in this case? No, it wouldn't have made any sort of difference. Um, Unfortunately, at the time, we didn't have a video in the apartment complex. Um, And as far as DNA, the DNA is going to last over a couple-day process, whether it's blood or whether it's uh, other bodily fluids. It's not going to dissipate over a few days. So we still would have been able to collect that. And the investigators at the time did a great job of collecting all the evidence that they possibly could. And we're just methodically going through retesting all that evidence to see if there's anything that we can find and utilize to uh, to find the offender. So, Detective, we talked to a bunch of people and they said that there were signs of a struggle in the apartment and um, that she had put up a fight. And a lot of people said that it's odd that nobody heard anything. Was there any canvassing done? So there was. There was uh, the entire building was canvassed, and that's actually where the time frame comes from. Is some people downstairs had heard um, a bit of a commotion and some people yelling upstairs, uh, believed to be coming from Tatiana's apartment, and that was on uh, September 28th. So that's where the time frame comes that there was a possibility that she was killed in and around the 28th of September.
Her friend and her parents found her. And she said they had to go get the key from the super to get into the apartment. Is that odd? No, that's that's the usual process. I mean, unless she had provided her parents with a key, uh, that's a usual process. If someone's looking to check on a friend or a loved one, they'll attend, um, they'll meet with the superintendent. If they're cleared, if they're on the uh, application or cleared to enter the apartment, they'll um, they'll give them a key to enter the apartment. Or if they if the superintendent has some. Um, he, he doesn't believe that these persons have the best interest of the person in the apartment at um, when they're going there to see them, then they'll call the police and the police will attend with the, uh, the people that are uh, looking for their loved one. Detective, normally when you close a door, you have to have a key to lock it. And if you don't have a key, then it's open. So were these doors in this apartment building automatic lock from the outside? Is that how it would be locked without a key? No, I mean, we don't know how many sets of keys that Tatiana may have had. She may have had one, she may have had two, she may have had a number of keys. So it appears as though, and we've had this in a number of our homicides, where the person leaving the apartment actually takes a set of keys and locks the door on the outside, obviously to prevent anybody from finding what had happened. So it's it's not unusual that that happens. Do you think she knew her killer? In my opinion, I believe she did know her killer. Now, how well she knew her killer, that's a a different story. Um, There's some information from some friends that Tatiana was very friendly out on the street and would meet people and sometimes bring them back to her apartment for for a chat and a card reading. She liked to to read people's fortunes with cards and such. So she was very friendly and would meet people, which probably wasn't in the best interest of safety. Um, But we do believe that in some way she did know her her assailant. We just don't know how well she knew them. You said that there's a lot, uh, a lot of different types of DNA. How long do you think it's going to take to go through all of that and process it properly? Well, it really depends. I mean, uh, we have a number of swabs as well as a lot of property. So... um, for us to send it all back into the Center of Forensic Science and have it tested. We're talking months, um, if not years. I mean, we could get lucky, and our first submission, we could find offender DNA, or it could take us resubmitting every piece of evidence in this case, um, which would take probably uh, close to a year to get the testing done on that. Now, is this something new? Like, when did you when did you start this? We've started the process already. We've already sent in uh, probably 10 items. Um, We just haven't received the fact that we have offender DNA profile. But we're hoping um, there was a lot of blood at the scene, so a lot of swabs were taken. And we we hope because this was a close contact murder and a stabbing, that the offender had cut themselves as well and there's a mixture of blood. Even if we find a mixture of blood, we can separate that to determine the male offender's DNA profile. Was Tatiana sexually assaulted? Uh, There's no evidence of that right now. Um, So we can't say for sure one way or another. Um, But we don't have evidence to suggest that she was sexually assaulted. Although that's some of the things that we're retesting as well. Um, Obviously in 1988, as compared to today, the sciences has come leaps and bounds. So we're going to retest all the uh, swabs that we took during the autopsy as well. And there was no murder weapon found at the scene, correct? There was not. No, no murder weapon was ever found. 
So, Detective, for somebody who doesn't really understand maybe how DNA works or the testing of it, you know, obviously from watching Hollywood movies and crime documentaries, we see that, you know, a DNA sample gets tested at the crime scene, gets put through the system, and if there's a match, normally it's because that DNA match is already in the system. That person, that suspect's DNA is already in the system. What happens if it's not? Obviously, genetic and familial DNA has become way more popular now, but it's harder to do. So can you explain to us maybe the differences between the two and and how you go about testing them? Definitely. And I mean, the the stuff we see out of Hollywood obviously isn't realistic. Um, I wish our DNA testing could take us a half an hour. We could solve the case. Uh, Unfortunately, we have to take swabs. We have to take it to the Center of Forensic Science and in a um, and in the lab environment, it's dissected. DNA profiles are created. That usually takes about eight weeks per um, per piece that we send in to develop to develop profiles. Uh, genetic testing has allowed us to, because unfortunately, Canada, um, as far as first world countries go, we have the least amount of people on our DNA database, our Canadian national DNA database. Um, so we don't oftentimes get a lot of hits off of our database. So we have a lot of profiles in Toronto alone. We have 42 offender profiles and we have no hits on the national DNA database. Uh, Places like the U.S. and the U.K. have gone to, when people are arrested, they're taking their DNA upon arrest um, and they're using familial testing on their DNA databases. So they're getting a lot more hits through that. But in Canada, we don't get that. We don't have that luxury, unfortunately. So we have a lot of cases where we have the the murderer's profiles, but we don't have information of who it is. So we have to go the route of um, genetic genealogy, where we um, take the DNA, we we put it into a different process where we can do familial testing, and then we can use certain sites based out of the U.S. Uh, to find family members of the offender's DNA and narrow it down to our offender and inevitably then go back to using um, regular DNA techniques that we use with autosomal DNA to prove a one-to-one match that the person that we've identified through genetic testing is in fact our offender. So detective, what is it going to take to solve this case? It's going to say it's going to take either the advances in science where we're actually able to create a DNA profile and then do things like genetic genealogy to find out who the offender is, or it's going to take someone with knowledge of this case to give us a call and let us know who the offender is. Um, a lot of times in cases like this, the offender will confide in someone, whether they just have a breakdown or whether they... Uh, they just want to get it off their chest over this, the course of this many years. Uh, somebody knows who the offender was. And we have a number of names that we're looking at as well. So if anybody has any sort of information at all and they wanted to give us a call, that would be a great help. And hopefully we could put this together and give Tatiana some justice. Elena says she believes she knows who's responsible. I think... Honestly, that the news talks about Wednesday night. Honestly, I think she went for a walk Sunday night. I think she either ran into the guy next door or there was another guy she'd met in the, the local park. There's a big park near there that we'd gone to. I remember her saying he was a butcher. I told the police all this. 
she never went out with him. They just talked a bit and talked about maybe going on a date sometime. Maybe he was some person of interest. Maybe it was the guy next door. I think she ran into somebody and she said, okay, well, why don't you come over for coffee? Because she was familiar with them. And I always thought it was the guy next door and that he wasn't going to take no for an answer this time. You know, there was no signs of forced entry. The police questioned me right away. Uh, I tried because the murder weapon was never found. I've never given up hope. And, you know, I think for everybody, especially for her, her parents, her dad, you know, died several years later, probably of a broken heart. And her, her mom several years back, but she's got her brothers still around. You know, they, they deserve justice. She deserves justice. Sandy Barola says her friend's death really impacted her. I spent a long time, a long, long, long time, always wondering who is who. Somebody out there is walking around and is responsible for this. And is it that guy that I just passed on the street? Is it somebody I go to school with? Is it somebody uh, you know who I've encountered somewhere? And I always question that. And, that, and so, you know, for me personally, it left a huge impact. It, ha- you know, it, it really affected the trust that I had with with men. To be honest, I spent a long time not trusting anybody because you just never knew because Tanya was the most trusting person I ever knew. And I thought, my God, if something like this could happen to her and and here I am, you know, like very fresh in university going downtown by myself for the first time. And, you know, it was really impactful for me uh, on a personal level. And, and, you know, I, I remember also, I think this all happened around the time of um, the whole Paul Bernardo Scarborough rapist thing. And I remember even thinking, I, could it have been him? I have no idea, right? Like, is you know, if that was sort of the type of person that she was attracted to. Like, I remember, you know, the, the guys that she always found good looking. They were blonde. They were, you know, fair haired, tall, whatever, like sort of that nice looking kind of guy. Right. So I was thought, could it have been him? I have no idea. So, you know, it, it leaves a lasting impact on you. It leaves an impact in saying, you know, on how you trust people and, and you know, the goodness of people out there. Somebody in that, in that apartment had to have hurt her. They had to have. And the fact that she was found, I'm assuming, like, I don't even know how many days later, at least like four, five, six days later after she died, like, how could that be, right? How could somebody just leave somebody there like that and, and just sort of, you know, close an eye? And, and it's, it's really impactful. It really is. Police are urging anyone with information about this case to give them a call. You can also contact Crime Stoppers with any tips anonymously. If you know something, say something. You've been listening to Tracking a Killer, The Cold Case Files. I'm Madison Fitzpatrick. And I'm Phil Martino. Thanks for listening. 